You're listening to FabRadioInternational.com. This is the Bookworm, an association of Starburst Magazine, and I'm your host, Ed Fortune, and I'm joined by... Cy Lloyd, your co-host. And coming up on today's show, I'll be talking about European monsters. And I'll be talking about the illustrated novella Sandman Dream Hunters. So it's all about monsters on uh, this week's show. Uh, coming up next, we're going to be talking about award season. So, in case you haven't been paying attention to the book news, and why would you? Because you listen to the bookworm on Fab Radio International and we tell you everything you need to know, honest. You might have noticed that we are in <coughs> award season right now. So all sorts of awards are coming up or have already been. Uh, we talked about the show on the show a little while ago, the Black Tentacle Awards uh, and the Kitchies. The uh, Kitchies. There's a website called Porno Kitch. Um, we, we did this as a news item on the show a little while ago but essentially uh, we like the kitschies um, partially because we like uh, what Jurassic London do and they produce a whole lot of movie mm. stuff harsh because they don't hand out awards for best um, they have a criteria which is be progressive be intelligent, be entertaining normally these go out to genre they don't have to, they just want stuff that's novel and interesting. Yeah. Their, their definition of something that's not and interesting is China Melville. You start off with China Melville, and if it's like that, they quite like it. Okay. So they gave out a whole lot of awards a little while ago. They used to be sponsored by Crack and Rum. They're now sponsored <laughs> by uh, Fall in London. Right. They do that deliciously dark, dark browser game. Yes. Um, Sarah McIntyre, who, who draws all sorts of really cool kids' books. Uh, we adored Jampires. I think we've talked about Jampires before. <laughs> yes, we have. Which is, uh, for those of you who, who don't remember, it's the book about the the vampires that suck the, the jam out of uh, donuts. They're Jampires. It's great. It's fantastic. There's, there's, there's one of them at my work, I'm sure of it. Well, Sarah McIntyre got the Black Technical Award, which is given to uh, outstanding members of the community. And what she's been doing is she's been campaigning for equal recognition for illustrators. Because quite often you'll get a children's book and it'll be like, the author this, also drawn by... And it's like, well, no, they work together on that So there's, a, there's about ten words in this children's book. It's all, <laughs> it's all about the illustrator. And this, the pair of them tend to work together as a rule. That's how good children's books are made. Yeah. Um, and she's been, you know, she's been calling for a more diversity of faces and this sort of thing. She's very progressive. She's very smart. She turned up, got her award, and the first thing she did was um, just be very very happy and thank Mallory Blackman who also won last year and she you know, she presented the awards um, fanta- fantastic stuff but yes so uh, award season is, is, is upon us shall we say uh, of awards uh, the Blue Peter Award has come out and Nosey Crow won the Blue Peter Kids Award that's an award that really matters yeah it's voted for by the school children it doesn't matter. It's, it's for kids' books, and it's voted for by, by, by school children. It's fantastic. And Nosy Crow do some fantastic stuff. 
Uh, mostly about princesses, though I prefer the stuff about weasels. For obvious reasons. Well, weasels are fantastic, especially these weasels that take over the world. So those are awards that have already happened. We've got an absolute pile coming up over the next few months, uh, because that's how awards work. Shall we talk about the Gemmels? The David Gemmel, Gemmel Legend Awards, um, awarded in memory of David Gemmel. Um, you get a Legend Award for Best Fantasy Novel, you get a Morning Sword Award for Best Fantasy Newcomer, and the Ravenheart Award for Best Fantasy Cover Art. I seem to recall that the Gemmel Legend itself is an axe. You get an axe? You get an actual axe. That's ace. That's a fantastic. Uh, uh, I'll in- start writing again. <laughs> winners in- include Mark Lawrence, uh, Brent Weeks, Brandon Sanderson, Graham McNeil. Graham McNeil, actually, I talked to about it a little while ago, and he said he almost dropped it on his foot. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> it's not a, it's not a, not an award you want to drop on yourself. That Win an award, get legless. That's the <laughs> way to go. <laughs> hey. Thank you. Um, <laughs> the British Science Fiction. Uh, Association, the BSFA, also have an award. They'll be giving theirs out at EasterCon, which happens on Easter. We'll be going to the zoo, we won't be at EasterCon. Uh, Though members of the team will be going to EasterCon and they'll tell us all about it when they get there. Um, Yeah, it's it's the British Science Fiction Fantasy Award. Uh, They do best novel, best short fiction, best non-fiction, best artwork. Everything from... I've got this huge list here for some reason. A Scanner Dartley won a British Science Fiction uh, Award. Um, the Brave Little Toaster, Hitchhiker's Get the Galaxy, and that was only in one year. And Mafago Wood, of course. Um, Pyramids, by Te- Pyramids by Terry Pratchett won a, won a British Science Fiction Award. That was another one that I enjoyed as well. Yeah. I really liked it. Um, Bit of a standalone again. But, it took me know. a while to actually get the Jelly Baby joke. Oh yes, yeah, the spelling, yeah. yeah. The, the Jelly Baby, it took me ages. I also didn't get the Pleiastis scene joke until like a week later. M- one of my favourite Terry Pratchett scenes is the, the the assassin suiting up scene where he get, he puts all the tricks in his in all his different pockets and all the little weapons and things and then just falls over because he can't move. <laughs> the emergency <laughs> drop as well where he falls off the building. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> emergency drop. Um, Accession by Ian M. Banks won an award because, well, of course it would. Um, all sorts of things. Jeff Ryman has won multiple times. Good for him. Jenna Melville, of course, won the British Science Fiction Association Award. We have no idea who's up for up for it at the moment. We'll find out soon enough. However, uh, the August Derleth Award is an annual award given out since 1972 by the British Fantasy so- uh, Society, so rather than the British Science Fiction Society. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very it's, different. It's, it's very different. Um, actually, the, the list is very different. Michael Moorcock has won an awful lot in the 70s, as you'd expect. Um, and Graham Joyce won in 2000, so there you go. Blimey. And of course, finally, we'll get to the Arthur C. Clarke Award. Um, it's currently held by uh, Anne Leckie from Ancillary Justice, because of course Ancillary Justice won, because Ancillary Justice is awesome. Um, Margaret Atwood is a past winner um, Lauren Ducas was also a previous winner 
So, so there we go, the Office of Clark Award, of course. Hello to the lovely people of the Clark Awards, by the way, if you're listening to the show. Hello uh, there. They're on Twitter. Their Twitter's fantastic, actually. Very, very worth a read, very engaging. Um, of, of all the awards that, that are out there, um, I would say that actually the Clark Award is the one that does its best to engage within the community that it's part mm. of. Did Helen Atwood confess to being science fiction in the end? <laughs> well, yes, science fiction author Morgan Atwood. If there's an award in it. <laughs> well, this is it, because it was handed out It was handed out some time ago, so one assumes, I don't know, shall we, we'll have to ask them at some point. <laughs> but, um, yes, because it was, it was handed out in 1987, so presumably she... Yeah, yeah. Presumably, she must have must have taken it. It's a science happy. fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speculative Spe- fiction is science fiction. Come on. Yeah. But, well, I, I don't know. It comes to a point where an author gets to a certain level of recognition, and sometimes they just get very confused by their genre. Mm. And I can understand that because I think some authors don't want to be trapped in a little box. Yeah. So it's like, oh, yeah, please don't try and define what I do. I just write good stories. That's great, but science fiction does get a lot of stick for. Being you know misunderstood Nation, as to yeah. what it is, and it's not niche. I mean, how can science fiction be niche? Star Wars, Star Trek, they're not niche. Come on, yeah. they're, they're 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 part of the culture. Going going at space travel is part of the culture. Speculating on further space travel is part of the culture. Science is part of the culture. We are all fascinated with living mm. forever. That is also science fiction. I, I don't understand. Yeah. I, I don't understand why people get so protective about the fact that it might may or may not be fantasy, it may or may not be science fiction. Of if does it does it have science? Is it fiction about science? Is it speculative? I it's probably science fiction. Does it have dragons and magic in it? It's probably fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I can see why as an author mentally when you're preparing to write, you should take yourself out of the box. But I think it's also not wanting to limit yourself to maybe certain niche groups. Mm. But there is no niche groups anymore. Fan- most people read fantasy. Game of Thrones has shattered that prejudice. Oh, yeah. S- Star Trek and Star Wars shattered that prejudice in the 70s. And yet still there's some people who think it's niche. And we've gotten off uh, talking about awards, haven't we? Mm. I've gone My into fault, a- sorry. Uh, I've gone into a rant. <sighs> uh, I've turned into some sort of monster. Do you know what I should talk about? Monsters next. Monsters, a book about monsters. Good luck. So, on this show, we're massive fans of the indie publishing house Fox Spirit. Fox Spirit Books produce all sorts of... They're, they're a small press. They produce all sorts of novellas, short story collections, and that sort of thing. And they specialise in short genre fiction. Oh. They We've talked about The Lonely Doll... Da, the Lonely Dark? My accent is getting in the way, I suspect. We have talked about The Lonely Dark in the past. Uh, which is an absolutely gorgeous little spooky novella. And they they tend to have fairly regular submission windows. They've got one for winter-themed stories at the moment for publication okay. early 2016, I seem to recall. Yeah, we're big fans of what they do. And they produced a coffee table book called European Monsters, which came out at the start of this year. Um, and I really liked it. I mean, the thing with small press is that obviously... They tend to go for the ebooks because the ebooks are cheaper. Yeah, and Fox Spirit do these things called Fox Pockets, which are the kind of cheaply produced little pamphlet-y things that you can, you can literally hide in your pocket. 
and they work quite well and they're quite fun. But this is like a proper, you know, it's a properly sized book. Sits nicely on the table. Mm. It's kind of landscape format. When you say coffee table, is there lots of illustrations as well? It's absolutely filled with illustrations. This is the thing. The thing is, the theme is European monsters. So it's your your kind of non-traditional creatures for from European myth and fantasy. Um, and there's illustrations for almost every single creature. Uh, it starts off with this great little story called Hearn by John Cartney Grimwood, which is very short, very sweet, and almost instantly, the illustrations really help actually, but almost instantly we kind of were transported to this post-apocalyptic England. Okay. It's London, there's, there's a tube, the tube is disused, because vines have gotten in the way. Right. Um, all sorts of you know, all sorts of plant life. It's been overtaken by greenery. Everywhere has been overtaken by greenery. Where does the light come from? Oh, this is it. The 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 apocalypse has happened, but it's an apocalypse of of trees. Okay. So so people are surviving, and it implies that well, it's not implies it's already stated. Cannabis cannabis just grows from literally from the bushes. You can just grab some. You know, all sorts of interesting plants are available. A kind of a plant bomb almost has gone off. And okay. There's this hunter chap who's wandering through these the the, the this urban jungle, this literal mm. urban jungle. And he, you know, he's a big fella with an interesting jacket, and he's carrying an interesting spear. Okay. Calls himself Hearn. Right. Wackiness ensues. I see. Um, and that, that that kind of starts us off quite nicely. It mm. kind of introduces you to the book, warms you up, as it were. Warms you up to, to, to a whole load of lovely ideas. There's a nice... The next one is a, a kind of a clash of culture story um, called the Vijig. Um, gives us kind of... It, it's essentially, it's a clash of different cultural ideas. Um, the modern day and essentially or ancient Norse. Norse meshing together in a way that doesn't quite work um, and that inherent conflict creates a rather interesting and cracking story it is quite a large collection and quite a few, few retails I liked uh, Broken Bridges um, which okay, Broken Bridges trolls have been done a lot yeah uh, especially trolls in modern day this is very noir it's a Dark noir troll story. Okay. There, there is a there is a wonderful gag at one point where you know he's this troll's trying to get on in the world. He's trying to live in the world. Uh, people say well, you should get yourself on. You know you should get dating. Have you tried the internet? <laughs> you should you should date on the internet. You should go on the message board. So he goes on the message board, puts down his opinions. He's, he's very blunt. And then somehow people know exactly what he is. Uh, I accuse him of exactly so. So he smashes smashes up the computer and runs away. He's he's not happy damn about that. Recognised. <laughs> they know who I am. How do they know who I am? I must flee, and and so on. But it's actually a very it's a very dark and sad story. Many of these are. Um, one of my favourites is a tale called NIMBY. Talking about monsters of the modern age, the, the NIMBY is definitely yeah. a monster of the modern age. <laughs> uh, uh, 
Uh, for those of you who, who don't know the term, uh, because you know you're unfortunately not from the UK, uh, a NIMBY is not in my backyard. It's someone who who opposes any form of change. Normally, you know, when someone wants to put in an improvement to the the village, so for example, some sort of power generation device or something useful. The, the NIMBY will complain because they're obsessed with their own personal property prices. This particular NIMBY is a monster. A territorial okay. pain in the bottom. If you've ever been to a council meeting, you've ever been to like some sort of local meeting, you'll recognise this horrific creature. Um, truly terrifying is the NIMBY. We should all, you know, we, we should all scorn it. Uh, one of the things that I actually like about Foxborough as well is they attract a whole kind of different level of authors. So you get authors mm. who are who are just starting their career and you get authors who are kind of doing very well for themselves. So Adrian Tchaikovsky and Aliette de Boudard are in this. Okay. Aliette uh, uh, yeah. has a story called Melanie, uh, which is beautifully illustrated. Uh, it, it's familiar, it's strange, it's about a man who lives in a world full of science and then he meets a creature or uh, sorry a person who is also a creature who is absolutely nothing to do with science and everything to do about magic and there's the magic there is the magic of love and there is the magic of maths and the two kind of collide in this very very strange serpentine tale it's also got two comic strips um, the first one is by Adrian Tchaikovsky. Um, it's straight up Monster Hunt, totally straight up. It's like Area Fifty. Uh, you know, uh, is it Area Fifty Two? The American uh, uh, Area Thirteen, Warehouse Thirteen. Warehouse Thirteen, yeah. It's like Warehouse Thirteen, where you. I have, can see why you get confused with that. Uh, it's it's like Warehouse Thirteen, where they're running around trying to solve a problem. Essentially, this guy is trying to sell a basilisk to the Ministry of Defence. Yeah, I can see that. Problems occur when someone with a checklist goes, hang on, we, we, we need to make sure that you're selling us what we think think you're selling us. Are you sure you want to check the merchandise? It'll be fine. A wackiness ensues. Yeah, yeah. Stony-faced. <laughs> the response. There's also um, a great story at the end called Mother Knows Worst, which is very on the nose when it comes to certain sorts of politics. It's very on the nose when it comes to certain sorts of, you know, uh, news stories. And it also reminded me of very early Hellblazer. Right. And a kind of Vertigo comic book style. The artwork was that the mm. very straightforward horror style that was very common in the 90s for you know, American, American comic books. And the story is very short but sweet. Okay. Overall, as a collection, I mean, I've, I've skipped bits out, and if you're if you're listening to the show, and you're like, why isn't you read my book? I, I, I could I could do an hour's worth of show on anthologies. This is the problem we have with anthologies: yeah. is that to give any anthology like its proper worth, you kind of really need to examine it, or you do a flyby. Yeah, uh, and we tend to do a flyby because we lazy, or also because what we want is we want to give people a taste for the, for the work and mm. the best way to give people a taste for the work is to pull bits out and say these are interesting highlights it's beautiful, it's well put together there's no weak story in the collection which is unusual for an anthology yeah, there's always one that 
sucks a bit. The, the, I mean, there's one or two that weren't that I didn't think were, were fantastic. Um, there's a great Kraken story in there. It's literally it's a cracking Kraken story. I really enjoyed. Um, but yes, uh, it's called European Monsters. It's by various publishers. It's about it's called European Monsters. It's by various authors, and it's available on Fox Spirit right now. the world 24 hours a day this is Fab Radio International we were lucky enough to catch up with Sarah Lotz and talk to her about her latest work so that's coming up next embrace the alternative this is Fab Radio International. Sarah Lott, welcome to the Bookworm. Thank you very much. Why should I read The Three? Oh, why should you read this book? Um, because it's about plane crashes and evil children, and they are the two of the most interesting things in the world, I think. so. <laughs> but it basically, it starts off with um, four... Um, almost simultaneous plane crashes that occur across the world. And uh, uh, there are um, only three survivors of the crashes, three, ch- three child survivors. And it's not immediately apparent if these children are suffering from uh, PTSD um, and severe trauma or if there is something uh, perhaps quite unusual about them. And that is really kind of the, the, the meat of the plot. I'm currently reading day four. Should I have read the three first? The three is um, the three is a uh, the first one, which is um, a standalone novel, and then the second one, day four, is um, coming out in May, and that is also a standalone. It's if you put the two together, you'll get a very sort of complete picture of um, what's going on, but um, they can be read completely separately, which sounds weird, doesn't it? I know. <laughs> What sort of people will enjoy your novel? I think it's um, certainly I've, I've, my, my primary intention of writing it was to entertain. I mean, it's supposed to be along the lines of, say, a Stephen King sort of thriller, thriller-esque novel. Um, it's supposed to be a, a page-turner, even if it does, you know, sort of travel in slightly more, um, you know, I'm making some points about sort of social issues, etc. But it is primarily an entertaining book. So anyone who likes a, a a good thriller, um, maybe dabbles in horror a bit, but um, that kind of thing. But, you know, an entertaining read. Probably don't read it on a plane, though, that's what I'd say. Why do stories about children make for such good horror? I think it's because children, obviously, we want to nurture children. They're, uh, you know, the gorgeous, big-eyed um, we want to protect them. And so when if there is something slightly creepy about um, a child that kind of goes against nature, I mean, I think it's like a standard fare for, for horror movies, horror novelists. You've worked with a number of people on a lot of different projects. Why? I, I love, um, I love, I love um, collaborating with people because every time it's a learning experience, it's like, cause I, and I choose the people that I work with, they're always better writers than I am. So I learned from them. I think that's if you're going to collaborate, always choose someone who's more talented than you because then you're, 
you know, <laughs> it's going to really help upgrade your writing and it's going to make the workload easier. So that's what I did. And I mean, I've written um, uh, a series of uh, YA novels with my daughter, Savannah. Um, I do very hardcore horror novels with um, a South African writer called Louis Greenberg, who's a brilliant literary author. And so we kind of balance each other out a bit there. And then I also write um, Choose Your Own Erotica with two other South African authors who are just... Uh, because I, and, I, and I chose to collaborate on that one because I came up with the idea, but I couldn't... I'm incapable of writing a sex scene, so I had no choice but to bring in... Um, a couple of writers who are just excellent at that kind of thing. Sorry, I have to ask, uh, Choose Your Own Erotica. I mean, I know that Choose Your Own Adventures are coming back, but why Choose Your Own Erotica? I think it did come on the research. I don't know whether it's waning now. Um, I mean, I, I, again, loved it when I was a kid. So when um, a few years ago I thought, well, why hasn't anyone done, like, Choose Your Own Porn <laughs> in a book? That would be quite fun to do. So, and uh, we were quite successful with that, um, with that idea. And I know a lot, quite a few people have been doing it as well. Um, so I suppose, I mean, why not? It's really fun. What's the appeal of horror? I think it's because, um, I mean, certainly I grew up watching and reading um, horror movies and kind of thriller types things. I mean, for example, I think that, like, uh, in Day 4, which is set on a cruise ship, very heavily influenced from watching the Poseidon Adventure as a small kid and being absolutely horrified and that had stuck with me for, you know, pretty much my whole life until I was able to write a book about it. Um, but I think it's because I think all horror novelists and I think pretty much everyone has got an absolute obsession with death. Um, I mean, it is the only thing that's going to happen to all of us. And so I think that's what's at the heart of um, of really almost all great horror fiction is sort of really looking into that mindset and what is going to happen when we die um, and, and sort of trying to explain it by writing about it. Who would you describe as your inspiration? I've always been Stephen King. He's like um, been reading him since I was, like I said, since I was I think about 11 actually. And that was the, um, the height of my um, literary aspirations when... He actually read the three and said how much he liked it. That's, that was, I mean, when I heard that, I actually burst into tears. It was sort of, I just don't know, you know, I could die happy now, um, as far as writing is concerned. Um, so I read, and, and Mina Soros, and then um, uh, Lauren Bukis, who's South African, for, uh, to my mind, the number one sort of South African author. She's absolutely brilliant. And... Um, uh, and, but my biggest pull influence as far as horror goes would be Ian, Ian Banks, who um, is Wasp Factory, which I read when I was a young kid as well, really kind of sealed my fate as far as writing was concerned. Are there any other genres you plan to explore? Yeah, I, 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 um, I think I've done crime, I've done um, YA, uh, erotica and horror, which horror is my first love. Um uh, as far as science fiction is concerned, um, but yeah, I think there are some elements of science fiction in all, my, all of my stuff, especially the Ethel Grey stuff that I write with Louis Greenberg. is um, has got elements of that. But I think I'm running out of genres now. I think I'm being a bit greedy. What advice do you have for those looking to get into publishing? Um, you've, you've got to persevere and don't take things personally. Like I've had about a million rejections, a million knockbacks, a million 
badge reviews, a million sort of, you know, quite harsh criticisms, and you just got to keep on going. If you, if you if you want to do this for a living, you've got to you've got to persevere, and you've got to take the good with the bad, and um, grow a bit of a thick skin. I mean, one of the reasons I've stopped going on um, social media was after the three was published, I got some really nasty um, threats and comments from readers, particularly from America, actually, and. Um, so I had to. I sort of wanted to divorce myself away from that kind of thing. But as far as getting published is concerned, you've um, you've just got to expect that it's not going to be just because you've written a book. It's not necessarily going to be published. You've you've got to persevere and just don't give up if it's what you really love. If you could only have one book, what would it be? God, weirdly, I would. And this is going to sound weird, seeing as what I've just said about Stephen King, etc. But. Um, I would like Persuasion by Jane Austen, because <laughs> I've read it about a thousand times and I never get bored of it. And um, how would I survive? Um, can I have anything else, or can I just... In addition to the book, if you are on a desert island, what other one thing would you want? Can I, can I have, uh, can I have well, like one of those Japanese vending machines that <laughs> sells everything? Or if I can't have that, then I just want a... Uh, I'll just have a basketball with a face on it. Just some quick questions to finish. Plane or cruise liner? <laughs> Neither. <laughs> um, but if I had to, I'd go by plane. I think the death is probably quicker. On that subject, why do planes and cruise liners make such good horror? I think it's because it's ubiquitous. It's like we all have to, at some stage probably go on a plane certainly we don't have to go on a ship but um but really i've kind of really thought about it and i think the reason why i've written about this is because it's all that puts down to claustrophobia really i don't think it, i think it's less about travel and more about sort of being trapped in an enclosed environment with a bunch of strangers and not being able to get away and i think that's what it is that terrifies me about uh, air travel and and traveling on a ship and finally, truth or beauty? Truth or beauty? Uh, truth. Sarah Lott, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. This is Fab Radio International. OK, so... I'm going to be talking about an older release from 1999. This is The Sandman, The Dream Hunters, um, written by Neil Gaiman and rather beautifully illustrated by Yoshitaka Amano. Um, the Sandman, most, the, the, the main body of the Sandman work is, is, is graphic novel. So, um, you know, very much, very sort of. It's not a traditional graphic novel by any means, but the the form is still there. For this one, um, they they wanted uh, Neil Gaiman to do something for the to mark the ten year anniversary, and he he kind of didn't want to. <laughs> uh, what he wanted to do instead was do a retelling of some Japanese fairy tales that he'd been reading, but which contained. Um, uh, a character called the King of All Nights Dreaming, who is very, very similar to his Morpheus Sandman character, fulfills the, the same role. Um, so he did that, and he, he adapted sort of two or three different Japanese fairy tales into a Sandman story, 
and it, and he and he wrote it as a prose piece, and he got this this wonderful Japanese illustrator to to do it. It's a very very pretty book with illustrations. I mean, the style changes a little bit. Some of it's very very traditional. You could almost find see some of the pictures on a plate somewhere. Some sometimes it gets more surreal. Um, the illustrations are absolutely beautiful. But what it's about is well, the, the main characters of the story are um, a monk and a fox spirit and an evil wizard. And the adventures that they have involve a lot of uh, thing, a lot of dreams uh, and, and incursions into that sort of dream space where that Morpheus occupies and controls, which is how it's a Sandman book, really. Um, so. It starts off with a badger and a fox. A fox spirit, in fact. Ed. Fox spirit. Fox spirit, yes. Yes, we're linking. We're, we're, we're all themed. It's like we plan these things. It is almost like that. Um, so a badger and, and a fox, uh, they decide to make a bet with each other about who will get to den in this lovely, rural, lonely temple, which is tended by a single monk. And what they do is they make a bet with each other. Who can drive out this monk? And whichever one of them can drive the monk out gets to den in this place. I'm just going to read you a very short sample. It's actually the introduction. A monk lived in solitude beside a temple on the side of a mountain. It was a small temple, and the monk was a young monk. And the mountain was not the most beautiful or impressive mountain in Japan. The monk tended the temple and he passed his days in peace and quiet until the day that a fox and a badger passed the temple and spied the monk hoeing the little plot of yams which fed him for much of the year. The badger looked at the monk and the temple and he said, Let us make a wager. Whichever of us succeeds in driving that man from the temple will keep the place as a home. For it has been many years since pilgrims or travellers came to the temple, and it will be a finer place by far to live than a badger's set or a fox's den. And the fox smiled with her sharp teeth and blinked her green eyes, and she swished her brush, and she looked down the hill at the temple and at the monk. Then she looked at the badger, and she said, Very well, a wager it is. And it's written in this very sweet fairy tale style. Um, the prose is gorgeous and simple and almost childish. As the story progresses, both the fox and the badger in a very short space of time fail to drive the monk from the temple, for the monk is strong and smart and that clearly sees things the way things are. But what does happen is the fox spirit falls in love with the monk and she discovers that an evil sorcerer guy um, called the Onmyoji, the master of yin-yang, who is, is kind of a a powerful man locally he you know he, he advises with astrology and he uses his magic to benefit the the the, the emperor etc so he, he's quite powerful and for his own reasons he wants the monk dead and the fox spirit who's fallen in love with him cannot allow this to happen um so because i think everyone should read it i'm not going to give you any spoilers as to how this develops but 
in you know basically in order to save the monk the fox spirit moves in the world of dreams ultimately the monk himself has to go into the, the world of dreams to save the fox spirit this this uh, master of yin yang this evil wizard has his own agenda uh, and his own visions to see um, and it, it's a very very simply told tale um, which speaks in this very childish language which is quite enchanting but as Neil Gaiman's very fond of doing and Japanese fairy tales are very fond of doing it's very poignant a little bit heartbreaking and there's a kind of melancholia in it Um, you enjoy anticipating the way things are going to go wrong and you enjoy sort of the even though there is satisfaction in the way things that turn out, you know that there's going to be sadness along the way. And you, you, you Morpheus, the, the the Sandman, king of night's dreaming, in this, the, the the way that he's drawn and illustrated, absolutely, you can see by the look on his face and the sort of the, the art that's around him the way that he feels about everything and the way that he feels about the way justice is served or love is served um, and you, you sort of you get an insight into his character from the drawing and, and, and the simplicity of the prose it's lovely so if I'd never read any Sandman before and obviously I have would it be a good introduction to the Sandman? I think it would um it's it's like I say it's completely outside of the rest of the Sandman sort of mythos in a way. Uh, there are characters in it from the Sandman, uh, the, the 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 Raven uh, that accompanies him is that is in there as well. Um, Cain and Abel have a cameo role in there. Um, so it, it would be. I think it's a good introduction to the kind of to the character of Morpheus rather than the rest of the, the, the Sandman mythos. And it's actually a good introduction to Japanese fairy tales, if I'm honest with you. That's where my love for it comes from. Um, and that's why I read it. So what's it called again? Who is it by? It's called The Sandman, The Dream Hunters. It came out in 1999, and it's published by DC Comics. Um, what? <laughs> is it the sudden realisation producer Al has just uh, started giggling I think it's the realisation that the, that the anniversary issue of the, the Sandman came out in yeah. 1999 <laughs> yeah. it's a long time ago and, and we were talking about awards this one won the Bram Stoker award in 1999 and it was nominated for a Hugo in 2000 it's, Hugo nominations are, are a strange and tricky thing and I believe by the time you actually hear this show I think they're closed mm. So, uh, so, so now it's time to vote. I wonder who would be nominated. We should talk about that in a future show. We should talk about who should be nominated.
International. You're listening to FabRadioInternational.com. I'm your host, Ed Fortune, and this is the bookworm. I'm here with Cy Lloyd. Hi, Cy. Hi, Ed. How's it going? Not too bad. Shall we talk about all things fantastic and mythological? And fairy tales and stuff, yeah, because that seems to tie in with, with our books, doesn't it, this week? Very much so. I mean, I really enjoyed the European monsters. I, the one that I absolutely adored, I have to admit, was A, the story about the basilisk, because basilisks are hilarious, especially especially one that's loose, loose amongst the British Museum. Right, yeah. Running around the streets of London, there's a basilisk. That's not a good thing to have. No, it definitely not. But I mean, what if you see it? What if it sees you? In fairness, if it's a museum, though, it's extra statues. That could always be useful. <laughs> uh, actually, that's, there's, a, there's a story seed, isn't there? Must, there must be loads of stories about Medusa and basilisks and sculptors. There should be, shouldn't there, really? Uh, it's, um, a, it, it, it's, it's slightly problematic. It's like, how oh, would you make a sculpture with me? Uh, well, I'll just find someone who looks a bit like you. <laughs> Get them to stand over there. Oh, there's got to be There's got to be a story where there's, there's some kind of museum curator who's actually a, a juicer or something like that. Well, there's, a, there's all sorts of waxwork-style stories that are yeah. along those lines as well. Yeah, there are. But yeah. uh, we've drifted off the topic. Obviously, obviously, trolls are always a fan of trolls as well. Anything that puts a troll into a story. But um, Japanese myth, so fox spirit, obviously. Yep, the fox spirits in there, uh, badger. Well, they're just the the, the the funny thing is, it's a bit like um, the African stuff. In in the, it, the start of the book, it's just a fox and it's just a badger, but they've got magic powers, so they clearly are a spirit of some kind. And later on, it does go on to pretty much admit that she's a fox spirit and not just a fox. Um, on all badgers, magic. I assume that you know that that is pretty much how it works. Yeah, um, I mean. To, to, Brian May uh, is actually just being mind controlled by by the badgers. Um, that would make sense. It would make sense. <laughs> There's a badger conspiracy. You heard it here first. Is it? <laughs> or or he, he could be a badger. I don't know. If you look at his hair these days, that there's a badgerness going on there. A were badger. Are we a were badger? <laughs> it was like the idea. Are we a were badger? It's better than being a were accountant. Yeah. For example, that'd be a yeah, most, I mean, most uh, things better than being aware Jap- accountant. To be fair, true. We were talking <coughs> about Japanese fairy tales, and they're, they're always in Japanese stories. They they are always very poignant and very melancholy, and you can see why Neil Gaiman's all over them. Um, there's a sort of grim inevitability of things um, in Japanese stories. He does like his fairy tales very much, so he does like kind of repurposes and myths for stories. It's only the because um, he's well known for Nancy Boys. Yeah, um, which is a cracking story. But I have to say, my actual favourite postmodern take on Nancy isn't by Neil Gaiman. No, it's by James Lovegrove. Uh, James Lovegrove wrote a, uh, I think it's called The Age of a Nancy because he writes these kind of mythic god punk stories. And it's this wonderful short story set in Nevada. Right. And it kind of it, it kind of steals a note from the Sandman. In the sense, do you remember the Sandman with the serial killers convention? I have only read one Sandman book apart from this one, so I don't remember that one. There's a there's a serial there's a there's a serial fans convention, which is actually a serial colours convention. Uh, okay. James Lovegrove kind of ran with that idea, and um, in the middle of the Nevada, Nevada desert, they get a bunch of people to have uh, an international novelty items convention. Oh, see. It's like whoopee cushions and all sorts of things, but it's not about whoopee cushions. All the trickster gods turn up. 
for their international trickster off. Because in this 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 post you know the, the, this post god world, this kind of atheist world, um, all the gods are just hanging around looking for an excuse. So they try and get one up each other. So they turn up to this convention and try and out prank each other. And it starts off with the kind of silly repercussions and the, the stupid things, and it ends up with flat out murder. All the way through. Loki's quite well handled all the way through, and Nancy's really well handled all the way through as well. And some of them are just flat out hilarious. There's about three of them that almost look identical because the gods are very similar to each other as well, because right. they're from you know, very close together regions with slightly different names. And they all go out exactly the same way because they're all the same kind of stupid. Right. So whatever prank just catches them all. Well, um, it's a it's a novella by um, James Lovegrove, which I believe is called a- Age of Anansi, which is a lot of fun. But I love that kind of you know gods and myths in the modern day. Definitely. I mean, the, the, the fox spirit kind of does that job in in, in this book. Really, she, she's very much the trickster. Um, but. The way she comes out of it is uh, absolutely brilliant. You, you know, um, I, I, I love the fact that you, you you end up rooting for this essentially immoral spirit. We do we do like our kind of naughty, cheeky, supernatural creatures. I mean, yeah. Even even, <coughs> even with the modern day, we've got people who are literally up all night to get Loki. Uh, the Avengers. <laughs> Sorry. The, the the Avengers movies uh, and the, the current Marvel movies I've heard mm. described uh, I've heard, heard four described as Loki one, Loki yeah. two, Loki three, yeah. Loki four. Yeah. And to be honest, yeah, yeah, he's one of the coolest things in all those things. I like the the Loki in that um, New Zealand. Um, the Almighty Johnsons. The Almighty, the Almighty Johnsons. Johnsons. Yeah. Again, uh, uh, we've gone from the idea of myths to, to God punk and urban fantasy, but yeah, I absolutely adore that show. Especially when they, slight spoiler, especially when they meet some other gods mm. who, who you know, turn up and are slightly annoyed <laughs> that they're there in the first place. Um, it's like, oh, there's a confluence of god energies. Oh. And they also the idea that, you know, you can, you can be in, invest you can inhabit the spirit of a god and be a good person and therefore even though it's a bad god the the creature in total is not terrible Yeah. and on the other hand the other way around you can be a terrible person with a, with a, with a light god and be an absolute mm. unholy terror the, the magic of these things is I mean not so much in the Sandman Dream Hunters because that's kind of set in a time of myth anyway but with, with tradition traditional Sandman what is that even a thing it's so old now I guess it is um, but it's how those creatures exist in the modern world like you were saying in, in with, with, with the, the troll doing online dating <laughs> oh poor trolls uh, it's one of the things I did love about the Sandman actually is the, the way that it's mostly set in the modern world uh, there's, a, there's a little bit where he tries to shift into the the DC Comics universe simply because it's a DC comic at the time and that was the original yeah. idea. Yeah. But really it's set in the real world. Yeah. Um, you know, Superman turns up once, I think, in a in a dream sequence. Um there's a there's a slight connection between uh, one of the characters and the broader superhero universe and obviously the Sandman, the the golden age Sandman, which is a guy with a gas mask turns up very briefly but that's kind of seen as a reflection of yeah he's an iteration isn't he 
Yeah. It's done in a kind of clever pastiche sort of way. But um yeah, blimey, we could do it we should do an entire show on the Sandman at some point. We might actually again, uh, regular listeners if you want to get in touch. Uh, we are available on all sorts of social media, but if you want to, you know, wave and smile at us and suggest what you want to do, what you would like us to do as a all-together show, and we get the entire crew in. Well, I think we might do the Sandman though, because we've all read it. We've all read some Sandman. I can have read it by the time this happens, if you want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you've, you've read some of the Sandman books. We, yeah, you know, I've, read, I've, read, I've read a Sandman novel, and I've read this Dream Hunters. So we could we could do a show about. It the whole thing maybe maybe maybe, yeah. maybe maybe not anyway that is for the future right now we're going to tell you to get in touch with our social media which is Radio Bookworm um, and um, we're also going to flee I believe <laughs> are playing the strangest musical instrument in the world. The only instrument that is not touched by hand. You ask for it. This is Fab Radio International. You have been listening to the program and it's time for me to say goodbye. So it's goodbye from me, Ed Fortune. And it's goodbye from me, Siloid. The Bookworm is a truly outrageous production for Fab Radio International and Starburst magazine. Presented by Ed Fortune and Siloid, produced by A.L. Johnson. <laughs>